We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, we're in Second Chronicles 35. We're just two chapters after this one chapter shy of completing Second Chronicles. We're reading about Josiah this evening. Again, Josiah, it says, kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the father's houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs, and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present, to the number of 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, his brothers Shemaiah and Nethanel, and Hashabiah and Jeiel and Jazabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites entered their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. And they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they did with the cattle. Also they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. Then afterward they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests were this, sorry, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. 
And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. After this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What do I have to do with you, king of Judah? That is he, that is the Pharaoh, sent messengers to Josiah. What do I have to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and to this day all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Just review for a moment. Remember, Josiah was eight years old and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So he died at the quite young age of 39. Seems like he could have reigned on quite a while longer if he had heeded the words of the Pharaoh. Uh, Not sure why he felt the need to go out to Megiddo and take up battle with uh, Pharaoh. So sad testimony there but otherwise a very good, good life that he lived and uh, served the Lord. All right, are you ready, Brother Jansen? We're ready to hear from you, so bring the word. We look forward to it, and uh, trust the Lord will bless you in it. Good evening. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at primarily the first four verses in this letter to Timothy from Paul. I've titled the message this evening, Praying for the Lost. Praying for the Lost. We see throughout Scripture and in this portion of God's Word that we'll be looking at this evening that it is a very important matter to God that we be praying for the lost. Therefore, we should conclude that it is important for us to be praying in that way. It should be a high priority in our prayer life if it's emphasized here in Scripture. In fact, it's such an important matter that Paul addresses it here in a laundry list of exhortations with a, beginning with a strong plea for the church to be praying for the salvation of the unsaved. We could presume, evidently, that the church in Ephesus was neglecting the task of praying for the lost, as they should have been. Perhaps 
out of a disconcern for them or a failure to understand the heart of God in this matter. I wonder this evening if perhaps it's not the former, it's the latter for us, that we neglect to understand the heart of God and his desire to be to see the law saved, and hopefully our hearts will be changed if it's directed that way this evening. The fact of the matter is, is that if praying for the salvation of the lost weren't a difficult task and an often neglected one at times, both for the original audience, and I can assume for us today, Paul would have had no reason to strongly urge the church to pray in this way. Often the reason we find things in Scripture is because it's something that we need exhorted on and encouraged to do and we should be convicted of. And so we can assume that Paul wrote for this reason. He taught us that we too must not take lightly the task of praying for the lost because it aligns with the heart of God. And so we'll look at that this evening. Let me read for you. This, uh, this evening, Second First Timothy, excuse me, chapter two, and I'll read through verse seven. Although we'll look only at the first four verses this evening, beginning in First Timothy chapter two, verse one, it says, "Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness." And reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. We see here, beginning in verse 1, that Paul gives an exhortation to be praying for the lost. I found a quote from C.H. Spurgeon, who wrote on the difficulty of praying for the lost in admonishing us not to neglect that activity. He writes, The sole winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you will catch his spirit. You will be fired with the flame that burned in his breast and consumed and consumed his life. You will weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. If you cannot speak so eloquently as he did, yet shall there be about what you say somewhat of the same power, which which in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the consciences of men. What Spurgeon is relaying here is that we should first go to prayer before we seek to win people to Christ. It should surround all that we do when we're evangelizing. Our prayers should go before Christ, asking him for the needed strength to do this task. So the exhortation for such praying is expounded upon here in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. 
And as I said a moment ago, it is the first of a series of instructions on how the Christians should be conducting themselves in the church in Ephesus. Paul goes on to address the conduct of women in the church, the qualifications for pastors and deacons, and tells Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14, that he has written these instructions so that the church of Ephesus might know how to conduct itself in church life. And so we also ought to heed the same instructions so that we conduct ourselves in a godly manner within the church. And this evening we'll give our attention to the first four verses in this chapter, which address the topic of interceding in prayer for unbelievers. And first, we see in verses 1 and 2 that praying for the lost is encouraged. Let me read verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2 again. It says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul begins here in verse 1 with an earnest plead for the church to be praying for the lost. Paul uses here what we see four words for prayer and then gives us the object of our prayers, that is, for all men. There is probably a slight nuance that Paul is making by using these four different words. We may wonder why didn't he just say pray, yet he gives us four different words that describe the same kind of activity of of praying. Perhaps it's just for added emphasis that Paul gives us these different words, but I think, again, there is some nuance that we can draw out from this, and that is helpful for our thinking and for our prayer life uh, when we are praying for the lost. The first word that we find here is uh, the word supplications, and we could define that as that which is asked with urgency based on a presumed need. And in line with the context of what Paul is writing about this evening, we can assume that that presumed need is what? The salvation of the unbelieving ones. The presumed need is the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that these people need. Of course, we want to be clear when we talk about that we're praying for the lost. We're not saying that the prayers themselves are the remedy for the person. We cannot pray that their sins be removed without the faith of the unbelieving being exercised. And so we're not praying like perhaps uh, the practice of the Catholic Church where they're trying to pray for those who are in purgatory and pray their sins away, pray them out of purgatory. So these supplications are not that kind of thing. We're praying that they understand the word of God and hear it and respond in repentant faith. The kind of prayers practiced in the Catholic Church for those in purgatory are useless in the kind of means or motive in which they have behind them. And so supplications, asking with urgency based on a presumed need, is not that kind of thing. It's different. We're praying that they will understand the gospel of Jesus Christ by hearing it and responding to it in faith. Of course, we can pray then for the living if we are not praying for the dead. 
praying that their need for salvation to be met through saving faith. So supplications is that which is asked with urgency based on a presumed need, but then Paul uses another word here. This is the general kind of word used for all kinds of, of prayer. Prayers can mean to speak to or to make requests of God. This is the most kind of general word that uh, the Bible uses to refer to prayer. It is used of all types of prayers to include uh, general requests or specific petitions to God. And it's the kind of probably word that we most commonly use when we talk about prayer. Of course, we may be more specifically talking about intercession or giving of thanks, but we generally just use the word prayer. The third word that we see here in Paul's writing is uh, the word for intercessions. And intercessions can mean this, to speak to someone on behalf of someone else. It's similar to the idea of supplications. You're, you're praying on behalf of someone and uh, praying for someone about a certain matter. But this may emphasize more the relationship and character of the person who demonstrates a boldness of access to God who hears the prayer. So the the first is more about the need. The second is perhaps more about uh, the person who is actually praying out of boldness and knowing that they have access to God in prayer. We know, of course, unless a sinner is praying to God to forgive him, he does not have the kind of access to the throne room of grace that believers do. So we may ask the question then, rhetorical as it is, who will be praying for the lost if Christians are not? Who will make intercession for them? Who will make supplications for them if Christians are not? Certainly the world does not care about the salvation of other unbelieving ones. And until the hearts of the lost are convicted by the Spirit of God, they will not be praying for their own salvation. And so it is up to us, those who have access to God and can do so boldly, these ones have the responsibility of praying for the salvation of unbelievers. It falls on our shoulders to take up this responsibility to intercede on their behalf. So Paul exhorts us to make supplications, prayers of a general sort, intercessions, and also, he says, in giving of thanks, the last of the the four uses or words for prayer. And this, this idea here is to express gratitude for benefits or blessings. We've just gone through the season of the Thanksgiving season, and I hope that we've taken some time to give thanks, but... We learn, of course, from Scripture and from this portion of of God's Word that we should always be filling our prayers with thanksgiving. This final word draws attention to the fact that all our requests and petitions should be followed by expressions of thankfulness and gratitude to God. I hope in our prayer life, and I I know I fault in this way at times, of going to God and interceding or praying about something, making a request or petition, but failing to then in return give thanks for all that God has done, uh, 
in my life and in, in the life of those around me. And so even in this case, even in the case of praying for the lost, we should be giving thanks for what God is doing, drawing people to himself, having saved people that we've prayed for in the past, praying and giving thanks that he will save people in the future. And so we must quickly and readily and consistently be giving thanks to God for all that he is doing. The specific kind of prayers that Paul is exhorting the church to be giving are prayers on behalf of all men. We see this at the end of verse 1. He says, giving of thanks be made for all men. The breadth of our concern for the lost should extend to all people because God is calling all men to repent. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 tells us this. I'll, I'll just go there and read it. Acts 17, verse 30. We see here Paul speaking uh, at the Areopagus, and he says this truly in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. I ask this question of us this evening, what may keep us from interceding on behalf of all men? Is there a reason for which we limit our prayers to only certain people or certain kinds of people? I hope not, but perhaps whether... uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we do this at times. Perhaps the best example is when we think of some of the most vilely wicked people that we know have done very evil acts. And we may wrongfully desire that they not have the same kind of opportunity for salvation that others do. Why should they deserve to be forgiven for their wicked deeds? We should not find ourselves in company like perhaps the biblical character Jonah who did not want God to be merciful to the Ninevites. We may neglect to pray for others because we, have, we feel or we seem to have lost all hope that they will ever turn to the Lord. Perhaps in your mind you can think of those kinds of people. You've been pleading to them to come to Christ praying for them, witnessing to them, and yet they, they don't respond. And you've given all hope, given up all hope on them. But I hope we don't do that. I hope we don't continue to do that, if that is our feelings. Perhaps you're thinking of the co-worker who is an alcoholic, the sibling who is a Jehovah's Witness, the parent who refuses to speak about religion, the child whom you've prayed for, For decades. Let me tell you, we must keep praying on behalf of all men. Paul goes on to say that these prayers should be made for all men, and he gives an example of the kinds of men. For he says in verse 2 for kings and all who are in authority. For kings and all who are in authority. Paul draws attention to the fact that those in leadership positions exercise and those who exercise authority in high places should be special objects of prayer in our prayer life. Why, you may ask? Well, 
Prayer for our civil leaders has a very, very practical and significant purpose. Our civil leaders, first and foremost, need salvation, just like all other people. They have a personal need, and so we pray to that end. But in addition, they are in positions of high power, which often lead to the sinful tendency to use this power for personal sinful gain. And so we must and ought to pray for them. We should request that God would grant them wisdom and discernment in their roles and that they would humble themselves before God in their positions of power. We desire to see men be in leadership that will exercise wisdom and exercise discernment based on the word of God. And so we should be praying for such leaders in our country who have a major responsibility and affect our society and the freedoms that we have. We should pray that they understand that it is God who has ultimately placed them in their position of authority, and therefore they are accountable to God for what they do. Romans chapter 1 tells us this, that it is God who has placed them in these positions. Chapter 13 says this in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I wish every leader in our country could read that verse and understand the full significance of that, and, but we should pray to that end, that they understand the word of God and that they respond like all men in saving faith. What a difference that would make in, our, in the policies that we see, but also in, in the way in which believers can exercise their freedom of living for the Lord. Paul gives us, though, here a reason for which we should pray to this end. He says in the, in the second part of verse 2 that we should pray in such a way so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul gives us here the purpose clause for praying in such a manner, indicating why we are to pray for our leaders and those in places of, of power and authority. We are to pray in such a way because, as a result, all people, including Christians, can lead a peaceable and quiet life. These prayers, we could say, have a very pragmatic purpose as our concern for the freedom to proclaim the gospel and lead quiet and peaceable lives is affected by the decisions that our authorities make. I think back to uh, the time in, during COVID where there were states and authorities who were trying to shut down uh, churches, not allow them to exercise the freedom to gather and worship, and, and that affected the lives of believers in some cases. Think about the, uh, the instance uh, in Canada where they felt that even worse, where pastors were literally being thrown in prison, unable to shepherd their flock. Did that probably not affect the lives of the believers and the influence and the spread of the gospel for a time? Indeed, it did. And so it is right that we pray for our leaders, that they come to saving knowledge so that we can lead the kind of lives that God desires us to lead, quiet and peaceable lives. 
However, let's remember that the quiet and peaceable life that Paul writes of shouldn't be interpreted uh, in, our, in our minds as something as simply the desire to lead a simple, quiet kind of life. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, perhaps in your, in your mind, when you think of the idea of a quiet and peaceable life, what comes to mind is you know, simply sitting on your back porch of your retirement home, watching the sunset and drinking a sweet tea and waving to your neighbors. That's not the kind of quiet and peaceable life that Paul's speaking about here. Paul's main concern is for the unthreatened freedom to share the gospel, freedom from persecution or turmoil, that might hinder the gospel's impact. Freedom from being silenced in the city squares or being thrown out of a city for preaching the gospel. And freedom to seek a life of godliness. That's the kind of quiet and peaceable life that Paul is thinking of. The ability to continue on in his ministry, unfettered by the the, uh, evil desires of the authorities, and their disdain for the ministry that he has. And we see that even today. Authorities and leaders who have a disdain for the Christian faith, who want to shut us down, who want to hinder uh, through policies and through decision-making the ability for the gospel to go forward. We see that on college college campuses where, uh, you know, how many times do you see uh, classes on, on the Bible, on simply teaching what Christianity is or walking through Scripture so that they have an understanding like they do with you know, any other religion in the world. That is a means and a, and a way of, of hindering the gospel impact, and we should pray that the Lord will raise up and save those who will be in positions of power to be able to undo those kind of evil practices. However, Paul gives us this very important prepositional phrase here at the end of verse 2. He says that we should pray in such a way, praying for the lost, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. I say here in my notes, a quiet and peaceable life is to be prayed for as a setting in which we can strive to live in godliness and reverence. Now, we shouldn't take Paul to be saying or implying that we are dependent on the salvation of our leaders to live godly and reverent lives. We can do that regardless, and we should be doing that. However, it does help that when they give approval or don't try to hinder the kind of godly activities that we desire to live, it does help us live out that godliness and reverence. Their approval or disapproval of our faith and our conduct does indeed have an impact on our ability to freely express those beliefs in the character, in our character, live out our beliefs without consequence. So we pray in such a way that we can live out that godly and reverent life. It is not wrong to pray for a setting in which we can accomplish this goal. We should pray in that manner. It'd be kind of backwards to think if we only prayed for persecution. Paul never really says that. You know, Of course, we should be willing to go through persecution, but it's not like we, we wish it upon ourselves. And we pray then in, 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 in contradiction and for a, a setting in which we can 
strive to live in godliness and reverence. All the while understanding it is a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ, if that is the setting in which he has ordained to put us in. And so either way, we understand that God is in control, but it is not wrong. It is morally right and good for us to pray for a a setting of, of peace so that we can live in godliness and reverence. Consider the example of Josiah, which you know, pastor was just reading this evening from that portion, and last week from the chapter in which we saw Josiah uh, reinstituting the Passover, reading from the book of the law. If we compare that to some of the other wicked kings that reigned, we can see that there was a drastic difference in the kind of ability for godly people to live out and express their faith when there was godly leadership. Josiah brought a level of revival to the nation of Israel just by honoring the word of God and following his commands. Would it be that our, our leaders would honor the word of God and its commands? We should pray that God would appoint leaders who will honor the word of God so that it has an effect on our land and our society and even more specifically allow us as believers to express our faith in Christ without fear of consequence and being shut down. We see then moving on in our text this evening that not only do we pray in such a way so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives and live in godliness and reverence. But we see here in verse 3 that that praying in such a way is morally right. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, if we follow the antecedent of this there in beginning of verse 3 back, we'll see that it is in reference to the prayer for all people in verse 1. So when he says for this, he's meaning for this kind of praying, the praying for the lost, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Praying for all men to be saved is good and acceptable in God's sight. Now theologically, we understand that not all people will be saved. And that unless the Spirit of God does a regenerating work in the lives of these people, they cannot be saved. But at the same time, we understand from the Word of God that God issues a general call, or we might call it a universal call, to salvation. A call for all men to respond to the gospel. We have to understand that we simply lack the omniscience of God. We don't have that. We don't understand what God is doing or who he is calling. And so we pray for all men, indiscriminately praying that they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We cannot discern in our finiteness who God has elected. Therefore, we pray without distinction, praying for all men. The logic here is that if God desires all men to be saved, and he does, because it tells us here that he does, it must be good and acceptable to him that we pray to that end. In other words, it is morally right to pray for all men to be saved. Paul prays this way, or 
desires this kind of thing. We see this in Romans chapter 9, verse 3 and 10, 1, where he says, you know, he wishes that all his fellow brethren come to Christ to understand and believe in the Messiah. And so Paul wished and desired and prayed indiscriminately for his fellow brothers. And so we follow that example as well in our own prayer life. In our general prayer, we ought to pray thoughtfully, making sure that what we pray for is consistent with what God's moral will is. Sometimes, admittedly, we pray amiss, asking for things that we realize, well, this probably actually isn't God's will. He wouldn't want this kind of thing, or uh, we just know that it's not consistent with the word of God. But we can be assured of this. We can take this to the bank, that our prayers for the lost are always good and pleasing in the sight of God. And so we pray in that way with confidence and boldness, knowing that if we pray in this way, we are never praying amiss for God's desire. And, that, and we see this in verse 4, which we'll move on to now. We see, see in verse 4 that praying for the lost is consistent with God's desire. Paul writes this, beginning back in verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Praying for the lost is consistent with God's desire. Look with me at Second uh, Peter chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, it says, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's as simple as that. God desires that all come to him, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that God desires all men to be saved, yet he chooses some from the foundation of the world to be saved, may seem to be a kind of a logical contradiction. How can he desire all to be saved, yet only predestine some from the foundation of the world to be saved? So we see maybe in our minds some kind of apparent contradiction, and how do we resolve this? Well, how can God desire something but purpose that it not take place? He desires all to be saved, but he's purposed from the foundation of the world that only some will be saved and others are vessels of wrath. So how do we resolve this kind of conundrum in our mind? How do we think biblically about this? Well, this seeming contradiction has led some to argue that when Paul says all people, he really means all kinds of people. So Jews and Gentiles or in our, you know, in our culture, maybe we would say you know, other nationalities or whatever it may be, uh, different people from different kinds of religions. I don't think that's the case here. I think we can find from this text that what Paul seems to be referring to is just humanity in general, not specific kind of categories. So he's not thinking in categories or kinds, but simply stating all people, all of humanity, all mankind. 
And regardless of whether Paul is thinking of all kinds of people or just humanity in general, I don't think that such an argument is necessary to reconcile this apparent contradiction between God's desire and what he has, he has purposed from the foundation of the world. I believe that it does not contradict the character of God to say that he has both a genuine desire for the salvation of all, yet has purposed that not everyone be saved. On a human level, a distinction between desire and purpose can be illustrated in a kind of limited way in a day-to-day life. For example, a parent likely has the desire to give their child everything they, they want or need. You know, you love to lavish upon them good, good gifts, good things, and that's a good desire. However, responsibility and a higher purpose as a parent compels them not to do this. Maybe it's not financially wise. Maybe it's not in their best interest. So you have a desire, but your higher purpose compels you to act differently because of what your role or your your purpose as a parent is. Of course, this is kind of a a limited example and illustration because our finiteness, you know, we, we have perhaps wrong desires and God does not have a wrong kind of desire or we may have wrong understanding of what our purpose is and God does not, of course, have that limitation. I was thinking, though, of another illustration. I don't have it in my notes, but even uh, pastors have been preaching in Matthew in the incident in the garden where Christ prays that this cup pass from him. He has a desire not to go through that. It's not a wrong desire because he doesn't want to bear the, the weight and guilt of sin. No man in their right mind should desire that. So it's a good desire that he has. Yet it's not God's purpose that the cup be removed. And so in this way, we don't have to see that there's some kind of contradiction here. What there is is a good desire, yet a different kind of purpose that God has ordained. The fact that God desires the salvation of all does not guarantee that all will be saved because of his sovereign purpose in this area. And so we understand that and we We don't have to struggle over that when we talk about the desire of God to see all men be saved, yet understanding that only some will in the end. And the fact is, those who will not be saved have no desire to be saved. Their hearts are blocked up. They are darkened. They are opposed to the things of God. They do not want anything to do with his redemptive work. If God has a genuine desire, then, to see all people saved, and we say he does because the word of God states this, we, too, ought to have the same kind of desire. Perhaps this evening we ought to do a heart analysis to ensure that our desire is aligned with God's desire in this area. Now, in verse 4, he says this, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The to be saved here in verse 4 and the come to a knowledge of Christ emphasize, in my mind, the divine perspective and the human perspective on God's saving work. To be saved emphasizes the divine saving work that God desires to do in a person whereas to come to a knowledge of Christ emphasizes the human perspective of those 
who are being called by God. They hear the gospel, and they come to a knowledge of Christ. This knowledge encompasses both the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What I mean by this is, of course, we understand that salvation is somewhat of a passive thing in which God is the one who is doing the saving, yet from our human perspective, we see ourselves as placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We're exercising faith in the knowledge of Christ. And so, whereas it is God who is doing the saving, we are the ones who are coming to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of what Christ, of who Christ is, and what Christ has done for us on the cross. On the cross. So then, in obedience to God's word, our prayer life should consistently include praying for the lost to be saved, especially those in authority, because it has such great practical implications on the ability for us to live out our lives in a peaceable and quiet manner in all godliness and reverence. We ought to pray for the lost because we know that it is pleasing in his sight because God desires all men to be saved. We ought to pray indiscriminately because we do not know whom God has elected. When we look at the world around us, Through our lens, we only see and should see one category, lost, lost. They need Christ. And so when we pray such prayers, praying for the lost, I am convinced of this, that God will answer these prayers by sending someone to give them the gospel. But be ready, my friends. He may choose you to go. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray that we have been reminded of the great, great need to be praying for the lost. It takes much energy, much work, much concentration, but Lord, may we not neglect such an important activity. Lord, Paul chose to place it at the forefront of a number of exhortations, and perhaps we can take from that that it is a very, very important matter among all of the rest of them. And so, Lord, may we have the same kind of heart that you do. Perhaps we've neglected to understand your heart and that you do desire all men to be saved. Lord, in praying in such a way, may you call some to a saving knowledge, especially those who are in authority. Lord, may you allow us to continue to exercise the wonderful freedom to live out our lives in godliness. And even if a day comes, Lord, where we cannot do so so freely, may we persevere through it and understand that it is a privilege to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Lord, may you call some even in our own families, Lord, our own circles of influence of those that we love, you call them to be saved. May they come to a knowledge of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this, Lord, confidently knowing that you will do that in some people's lives, Lord. And through all of it, whatever your purpose is, you will be glorified. And we, we have confidence in that. And in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for coming out this evening. Enjoy some fellowship this evening. Those who are here in person, if you're online, hope that you've enjoyed our time, and we hope to see you very soon. Gather with us. Be here next Sunday for the Christmas concert, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you then. All right, have a good evening. Thank you.